Well, good morning. It's uh, great to see you. Thank you for joining us here on our online services. We're journeying through the Gospel of John, and we're learning a lot and finding great valuable lessons for our lives in just kind of the everyday life. We're finding this book that's written over 2,000 years ago, or at least the completion of this book was 2,000 years ago, is still incredibly relevant to us today. And really to unpack what our passage has for us this morning, I've got to make sure that we all kind of understand a very important term. This is a a very technical term, so you're going to have to brace yourself a little bit here. It's a a highly uh, theological and very astute term, and so I want to make sure that you're you're ready for this as I kind of explain it to you, and you, you might be already familiar with it already. The term is this, FOMO, FOMO, F O. M-O. FOMO. What is that? FOMO stands for the fear of missing out. Now, I know you're thinking, wait, that's not highly technical, right? And I thought that it was actually pretty hip that I would bring that up into a message, but I actually talked to one of our high schoolers just recently, and they said, you know what? Uh, Nobody says that anymore. So I guess I lost points there. Trying to be cool, not cool. But I actually do think it's a very important term for us to consider. Here's what I mean by that. The fear of missing out. FOMO. Maybe you've never heard of that before. Well, let me explain kind of what it is. I'll give you an example. When your 13-year-old daughter comes up to you and she is trying to plead with you that she needs a cell phone. She needs a cell phone because she wants to access social media. And so she comes to you and she says, but dad, like all my friends have one. What is that? That's FOMO. That's the fear of missing out. She's afraid of missing out on an experience that all of her friends are able to enjoy. Uh, Let me give give you another example, maybe a a higher age group than that. It could be maybe uh, somebody who's renting, right? They're renting and they feel like they're kind of throwing away their money in renting and and their friends are, are now owning homes and they feel like, man, there's some great financial advantage to home ownership, and so they have this sense of fear that they're missing out on an experience that their friends are experiencing. Again, that's FOMO. A little more adult, but it's the same exact fear. Uh, Let me give you one more example, maybe a little higher than those two when it comes to age group. It could be somebody who you know, whose kids are grown. Their kids are grown. They're out of the home. They're, they're independent. They're off, and, and, and they're, they're very successful, but, but there's no grandkids yet. And so this person happens to have other peers, and they have grandkids, and they, they see all the stories, and they, they see all the photos, and they want some pictures of their own, and they want some stories of their own. That's, that's FOMO, the fear of missing out. They want to experience what their peers are experiencing. Now, in our life, we have many things that we don't want to miss out on, right? And in our passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus interact with a group, a group that is experiencing a great amount of FOMO, a great amount of a fear that they're going to miss out on something. But here's what's going to be the big problem, is they don't have the right FOMO. They don't have the right fear of missing out on something. They're they're missing out on Jesus and what Jesus has to offer. And they're not afraid about that. They're not worried about that. They're not anxious about that. In fact, it's not even on their their radar. And Jesus will kind of confront them with this reality and say, Guys, you're afraid of missing out on this thing, but I'm right here offering you the greatest thing. This is what you should be afraid of. 
So as we jump to our passage this morning, John chapter 7, we're in uh, uh, verse 32. We've been in John 7 for a while, but we're in verse 32 for this morning. I want to kind of crystallize the big, the big idea of our message today. That I think the main idea of Jesus' teaching in this passage is this. Now remember, the big idea is meant to stick with you. It's not going to be the most religious-sounding big idea, especially today, but I think it will stick with you at least for a week to remind you of what we talked about today here in our service. So the big idea is this. If you're going to write down anything, I want you to write this down. Take that pen out or maybe jot it down uh, on your phone. The big idea for our message today is this. FOMO for Jesus is good. FOMO for Jesus is good. The fear of missing out on Jesus is a good thing. Let's look at Jesus interact with this group, again, who has some fear about missing out on something, but they're not afraid of missing out on Jesus. And the first part we're going to see in our passage is they're completely missing out on Jesus. And the kind of second half, we're going to see what they are afraid of missing out on. And Jesus will actually hijack that kind of moment, and he'll show them, guys, you should be afraid of missing out on what I have to offer. So let's jump right into our passage and see this. This is verse 32 of John chapter 7. It says this, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. This is about him being Jesus. Jesus is teaching again in the temple. He's teaching during this festival time. So there's a lot of crowd. There's a lot of attention. And there's been this kind of conflict with, with the crowd knowing that the religious leaders want to uh, arrest Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. The, some of the people in the crowd are aware of this plot to destroy Jesus because Jesus is just too much for them to handle. He, he, they don't like where he's going. and They don't like uh, that they're losing some religious influence and some religious power. In fact, they feel themselves um, almost in jeopardy because if Jesus causes too much of a ruckus, Rome may come in and not only take out Jesus, but take them out as well. So Jesus is a, a liability to the status quo that they're enjoying right now. So this, this group called the Pharisees, they hear all this muttering. And it says, and the chief priests, I'm in verse 32 again, and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. We got to get this guy out of here, right? They're missing out on the wonderful teaching of Jesus and what he has to offer. They're in opposition to Jesus. Now look at how Jesus reacts. He's going to show them, guys, you are missing out. You are missing out on what I have to offer. First kind of Jesus responds to the threat. Right? They're coming to arrest him. And look at how Jesus responds to their threat. He can tell their intent. Maybe he sees the handcuffs in hand, right? He sees that they're making this advance on him. And this is how Jesus responds. Verse 33. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to be with him who sent me. What is Jesus doing there? It's almost like Jesus just gave them his calendar. He's saying, hey, here's how the events are going to unfold. I'm, I'm going to leave. I'll be with you for a little longer, but then I'm going to leave, and I'm going to go to him who sent me. Now, why does Jesus respond like that? Well, clearly, they are the aggressor right now. They're pushing forward a plan. They're here to arrest Jesus. They're in opposition to Jesus. They need to eliminate Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, guys, let me tell you how things are going to plan out. 
Yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to stay for a little bit, and then I'm going to go to him who sent me. Jesus is basically saying, look, I'm not threatened by your plans here. You may think that you're in control, but my day planner is already set. Let me show you how the events will occur. Jesus is making a statement of control here. He's giving the timetable. We, we saw this in our passage last week in verse 30. I didn't mention it then, but it's the kind of same kind of idea in verse 30 of John chapter 7. It says, So they were seeking to arrest him again, right? but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. What does that mean there? The hour was kind of the unfolding plan of God for Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. The hour was Jesus' death and resurrection, his exaltation, right? The moment of his glorification, he would do the work he was sent to do. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not time yet. So Jesus is showing control. I'm going to leave, or I'm going to be here a while, and then I'm going to go. Now look at this next thing Jesus says, verse 34. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. What is Jesus saying here? Now, Jesus says a similar phrase to his disciples a couple chapters after this. Let me show you this in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, Jesus says almost a similar statement. Look what he says in chapter 13 in verse 33. Jesus says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, I think the tone is a little different. In chapter 13, Jesus addresses his disciples as little children. I think what Jesus is saying there is, guys, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go. Right? I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again, and I'm going to sin, and I'm going to go back to my father. But Jesus would reassure his disciples later in John's gospel that he would come back to them. What Jesus is saying in John 13, I think, is, hey guys, I'm going to go, and you can't come yet, but I'll come back for you. So, so wait there. So really we could summarize kind of what Jesus is saying in John 13 as more of a, wait, guys. I'm going to leave, but wait, my little children. I'm going to leave, and you cannot come right now, but later I will come back for you. That is not the tone that Jesus is saying here. Not even close. Look again at John chapter 7, at verse 34. He says, You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. What I think Jesus is saying is, Guys, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out. Jesus would use a very similar phrase to this group again in chapter 8. And look at the tone of this one. See how much different the tone is. This is John chapter 8, verse 21. And he said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me. Very same phrase. And you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now this one is much more clearer. This is not ambiguous here, Jesus' tone. It is a tone of rebuke. Jesus is saying, you will die in your sins. So when he's saying, you're not going to come with me, he's not like he's telling the disciples, hey guys, not yet, and I'll come back for you. Wait for me. No, he's saying, you will always be outside. That's what he's saying right now to the Pharisees. You cannot come. 
You cannot come. In fact, you will die in your sin. This is an ultimate warning here. It's not an encouragement to endure. It's a warning to change. You have to change your posture toward me. You are missing out, and you will miss out forever if you don't see what's right in front of you, and that's me. Jesus says, you will seek me. He used that same term in chapter 8. What does he mean by that? And you will seek me, and you will not find me. Now, Jesus just said in verse 33 that he'd go back to the Father. So what is he talking about? I think Jesus is saying here, when I leave, right, I will die, I will rise, I will ascend, I will go back to the Father. You're going to be looking for me. Now, I think what Jesus is saying is, not that they're going to be looking specifically for Jesus, but they're going to be looking for Messiah, who Jesus was. They're going to be looking for that character, the character they've been waiting for. Messiah is the idea of this kind of Old Testament hero that was talked about over and over again in the Old Testament. It became the high point of Jewish expectation in the first century world, even before that, especially during the time of exile, when they lost the land and they were taken into captivity. The over and over again, they were reassured there's a great hope that will come. A deliverer will come. A savior will come. A hero will come. A Messiah will come. Now, Jesus is saying, I am that Messiah. But Jesus is saying, when I leave and I go, you're still going to be looking. You're still going to be looking, and you won't find Messiah. Why? Because I'm gone. Now, we know historically this is, this is very accurate. After Jesus dies and rises again and goes back to the Father, the Jews would still look for other Messiahs. Other Messiahs would come and claim to be the Messiah. Most of them were destroyed or killed by the Roman authorities. So we know that people claim to be Messiah. We know that groups of people said that they were the Messiah. They believed those claims. So Jesus is saying here, you're going to search, but you're not going to find. Why? Because I'm the real deal. You are missing out on me. This is a stern warning. They should be focused on Jesus, yet they are missing they're missing out. Now, how do they respond to this? When Jesus says, guys, you are, you are so far away from where I want you to be. Right? You, you are missing out on, on who I am and what I have to offer. Look at their response. It's one of confusion. They can't get their minds out of the mud of earth. They cannot think about heavenly things. Look at, look at what they say, verse 35. It says, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach among the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? What is he talking about? All their response is just a series of questions. Wait a second. Jesus is going to leave. What is he talking about? Is he is he going away to the Jews that have kind of been scattered among the Greeks? That's what he's talking about, the dispersion there? Is, is that what he's talking about? Because that's probably the only place we couldn't find him. But if we searched hard enough, we could find him. What, what is he talking about? Right? Clearly, what are they showing? They're just missing it. They're missing Jesus. They cannot comprehend. They cannot see the, the deep kind of spiritual language that Jesus is delivering to them. They only think in an earthly way. 
and understand what Jesus says when I will go back to the one who sent me. They can only think of kind of a lateral GPS, right? They can only think of, of kind of a terrestrial GPS. It's right here on the planet. Jesus, where are you going? And Jesus is saying, no, I'm going back to the Father because I am the Son. I would have done my work, and that work was for you, but you can't see it. Now look at this. I think this is very interesting. They're missing out, but this group of Pharisees is in the midst of a festival, a very important festival. And I want to say that it's a FOMO festival. Now here's what I mean by that. It's, it's It's a biblical festival. It's a festival they should be doing. But the way in which the Pharisees practiced this festival, it turned into a festival of the fear of missing out on something. Let me show you this. And this is where we're going to see their FOMO, their fear of missing out. Their anxiousness is not about missing out on Jesus, where it should be, but rather it's placed somewhere else. Look at the setting, because I think it's extremely interesting that John places this uh, uh, next story right here, right next to what we just read. He introduces the group of Pharisees, how they're missing out on Jesus, and then he talks about this very specific day. He includes this right here, and I think it's interesting. Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now we've got to understand a little bit of history. We've got to step back a little bit and see why this is such a profound and significant statement that Jesus is making and John is highlighting for us. First, look again at verse 37. It says, the last day of the feast, the great day. What is the feast? This is the feast that's been occurring since the beginning of John chapter 7. This is the feast of tabernacles. John calls it the Feast of Booths, right? It's, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. It was this wonderful feast that the people were supposed to perform. They were given instruction in the Old Testament to do this. Moses gave them the instruction to do this feast. It was a, it was a very important feast. And during this time of celebration, there were several water ceremonies. Now notice what Jesus said. This is the last day of the feast, the great day. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. Jesus is choosing these words, referencing water, thirst, and drink. He's doing it intentionally. Why? Because this festival that is happening, that they're in the midst of, is very much about water. The themes of water are throughout the festival. Let, Let me describe it for you. Here's what would happen. It was a seven-day feast. At the time of Jesus, we're, we're, uh, uh, we see people practicing it, it being eight days long, right? But when it was first instructed, it was seven days long. So seven days, which means probably here, this is either the seventh day or it's the eighth day. It's the last day of the feast. It's the great day of the feast. It's the culminating moment of the feast. So the seven-day feast, here's what they would do. They would go first in the morning and at the pool of Shalom, which was not that far away um, from the temple. And they would go to this pool with kind of this golden cup. And they would, they would fill up the cup. And they would, they would walk to the temple, probably about uh, a mile or so, approximately. They'd walk to the temple. And then get, they'd get to this gate called the water gate. 
And at the water gate, they would blow the shofar. This is kind of a, um, a trumpet. And they blow the shofar as kind of this, this, this proclamation of excitement. And they would continue their journey, and they would get to the altar. And at the altar, they would sing psalms. They would sing Psalms 113 to Psalm 118. And they would have some things in their hand. They would have, uh, in their left hand, they would have kind of vegetation, just an assortment of different vegetation. And and, uh, the males would have not only that, but they'd also have some citrus fruit in their right hand. And they'd be shaking it. And the idea is this was happening right after harvest. So they're shaking these things in the air as kind of a testimony to their thankfulness that God has given them provision. He's given them the vegetation. He's given them the fruit. And so they were shaking it in the air. And they would say three times at at the altar, uh, thanks be to God, thanks be to God, thanks be to God. So they're thanking God for his provision. And they would do this every single day. They would do this. They would take the the water and they would bring it to the altar. They'd blow the shofar. They would shake uh, the citrus fruit and they would shake the assortment of vegetation in the other hand. And they would say these kind of thankful things and they would be singing and doing all this. And they would take the water and they would pour it in a bowl. There'd be two bowls, one for wine, one for water. And they'd pour it in the bowl and they'd pour those bowls over the altar as kind of a, a, a sacrifice, if you will, to the Lord. Just a sacrifice of thankfulness and gratitude for God's provision. And they did this every single day. And then on the seventh day, they would walk around the altar seven times. They would do this seven times. Now, this festival was extremely important for a couple reasons. The first reason was it was a festival, festival of remembrance. They were remembering God's provision, specifically God's provision in the wilderness. When the people of God were just really becoming a nation, They were under slavery in Egypt. They were journeying to the promised land. And in between Egypt and the promised land was the wilderness journey. And God miraculously intervened into their situations. That when they were hungry and they were thirsty and and, and they needed God's supply, God would show up in miraculous ways, giving them great provision and preserving them through the journey. And so Moses says, we need to have a feast. A feast to remember God's provision in the wilderness. And that is the feast right here, the feast of tabernacles. God, you were there with us. And this feast would take place right after the harvest. So it reminded them every year of God's provision, not only what he did in the wilderness, but what he was doing every year for God's people. And Jesus is saying, with all these kind of water imageries and all these kind of ideas of provision, Jesus says to them, if anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. Now this festival for the Pharisees took a little bit of a turn. I gave you kind of a description of what that practice would be, but it took a little bit of a turn for the Pharisees. They treated this festival slightly different than Moses instructed in the Old Testament. And I think it's important. So let's just, let's go back a little bit to kind of the history behind here, because I think this is important in understanding the Pharisees' position on all this. You see, there was a big fight about 70 years, 100 years before Jesus was ever born. This, this festival was being celebrated. The, the Feast of Booths was being uh, celebrated. The Feast of Tabernacles was being celebrated. 
It was an exciting time. Some historians have called this the greatest of the Jewish festivals. So, I mean, this was like the Super Bowl of spiritual days. So they're having an exciting time. And the Pharisees at the time, this, this, this kind of group of the religious elite, were starting to say, hey guys, we really need to include something new into the festival. You see, because this is happening during a time where summer has just ended, and our water supply isn't very ample, right? It's not very big. It's starting to diminish. So we need to include prayers for water, prayers for rain. We need God's provision in rain, because right now things are drying out. And one of the religious leaders at the time, not a part of the Pharisees, part of another religious, or part of another uh, religious group under Judaism, under the Jews, was another group called the Sadducees. And a high priest at that time said, no, I'm not doing that. In fact, when he was performing kind of that, that altar ceremony I described, when he had that golden cup of water, instead of pouring it on the altar, in protest, he pours it at his feet. And the Pharisees get so mad that they beat him with the stuff that they were supposed to shake in thanks to God. They beat him. That's like honestly beating somebody with a Bible, right? They're beating him with religious things. And this high priest kind of made this protest and said, no, we're not adding this. I don't like this. Well, it's not until that priest died that the Pharisees came to an agreement, an agreement with that high priest's wife. They said, look, we'll let you have your power. We'll let your sons be priests, but we're going to add this into the feast. We're going to add these prayers into the feast. And that happened about 70 years before Jesus, and that became a dominant theme in the Feast of Tabernacles, in this feast right here. So think about it. These Pharisees, this group that Jesus just interacted with, who are totally missing him, they're participating in a feast of FOMO, the fear of missing out on rain. And as they're praying and begging, God, give us rain. Give us rain. What does Jesus forecast? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Wow. How profound. Jesus knows the exact things to say in this sort of setting. These people have watched day after day as water has been gathered, brought to the temple, brought to the altar, poured out over the altar. He's heard the prayers that the Pharisees insisted on, the prayers for God give us rain, we are dry. We are, we are in the midst of a very thirsty land. Give us rain. And Jesus steps up to the plate and says, Speaking of rain, I can give you what you need. You come to me and drink. Now, what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about much more than, than rain, much more than water. Jesus has a deeper meaning to what he's offering. And John explains it for us. Look in verse 38. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Come and drink and living water will come. And look at John explain very specifically what is Jesus talking about when it comes to living water. What's this kind of rain he wants to pour down? Verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not been glorified. Jesus says, I have some living water, some fresh water, some fresh spiritual water. John makes it clear Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. They're thinking about physical rain, and Jesus is thinking about the Spirit raining down on people. And he says, come, believe in me. Drink right here, and I will give you living water, the living water of the Spirit. Now, Jesus says in this passage, in verse 38, whoever believes in me as the Scripture has said. Now, we would take that maybe as uh, uh, first century English readers. You know, we take that, and we or 21st century English readers, sorry. We would think of that that Jesus is quoting a very specific passage in the Old Testament. Like word for word, that's what he's quoting here. But that's not what Jesus is doing, and that's not how quotations were really done in the first century world. What Jesus, I think, is doing is Jesus is not quoting one passage. Jesus is referring to several passages, maybe even hundreds of passages. Jesus is referencing a theme in the Old Testament, a theme that God would move in a new way for his people that he would pour out his spirit like water on them. Let me just give you two, two that stick out to my mind to show you how this was a big expectation. And Jesus saying, here's what I came to give you. Look at, this is Isaiah chapter 44. Listen to this, verse 3. And think of the prayer of the Pharisees for rain. They knew rain was essential. And they believed that their obedience in these prayers was essential to get rain. They knew under the old covenant, God promised, if you obey, I will make it rain. If you disobey, there will be drought. So clearly they know that their spiritual uh, maturity and their spiritual integrity would directly be connected to there being rain. So these prayers were incredibly important. No, we must do this because we need the rain. We need to be sustained. This is what they're afraid of missing out on. Now think of this, though. Think of those prayers being heard and echoed, and look at the promise that Isaiah the prophet gives. This is verse 3 of Isaiah 44. He says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry land, and I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Anyone will call on the name of Jacob. Or sorry, another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. What's being described here? God is saying, I'm going to pour out my spirit like water. On a thirsty ground. And what is the thirsty ground? It is the descendants 
of Israel. It is the people of God. They are a dry and thirsty ground. And it says that God will pour out his spirit and it will cause this kind of spiritual revival. Right? This kind of spiritual renewal. People will start to sprout up. They'll make these confessions and they'll say, I am the Lord's. God owns me. I think this is what Jesus is referring to. I have come to pour out this spirit. I have come to pour out living water. You're begging for rain. I'm about to make it rain, the Spirit of God. Look at another chapter, another verse, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. Look at this, verse 22. Same kind of imagery, same kind of themes, spirit and water put together. But he's going to elaborate more. How does this spiritual renewal happen? And I think he's going to mention kind of three things. I want to give you the whole flow, so I'm going to read a little bit for you. This is Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Clearly he is saying, you don't deserve this, but I'm going to give it. Right? Whatever God's going to do is clearly an act of grace and mercy because there's nothing in there that's given us any reason to believe they have credentials to receive what God's going to do. They have not earned it. There's no way. He's saying, you, my name has been profaned because of you. You've messed this up, but look what I'm going to do. Verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle, here's the water, sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. What does verse 24 and 25 say? God is going to forgive us. He's going to cleanse and take away sin. But he's going to do more than that. More than just forgive, he's going to transform. Look at verse 26. And I will give you a new heart. Because this is where sin resides. This is why you need forgiveness. Because this thing produces sin. So I will take care of your sin, but I will also take care of the thing that's producing the sin. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. There's that theme, water and spirit. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see that? I'm going to transform you. I'm going to forgive you of your sins, and I'm going to transform you from the inside out, from the very depths of who you are. Your heart, the, 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 the thing that everything around you, everything in your life orbits around, right? This, the, if you want to think of the heart, the, the heart is like the sun of the emotions and the desires. He's saying, I'm going to take out the sun, the center, the center of your, your emotional, spiritual, solar system. I'm going to remove what's in the middle. I'm going to put something else in. And now every other planet is going to orbit differently. Every desire is going to be aligned in a new way, in a new formation. I'm giving you a new heart, transforming you. Not just cleaning you up, not just making you look good, but also transforming you, making you a new person. But on top of that, look what else he gives. Verse 27. And I will put my spirit 
within you. Not, I will put a spirit. Not, I will make you spiritual. He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What is he saying there? I will forgive you of sin. I will transform you and I will commune with you. I will be inside of you. My spirit in you. Jesus unpacks this later in the Gospel of John, and we're going to see that. But look at what Jesus is offering these guys. They want rain. Right? They want the physical needs met. And Jesus is saying, you need to hunger for something much more than that. I am going to answer your prayers in a way that you would never have expected. Oh, I'm going to give you rain. I'm going to give you the living water of the Spirit that will forgive you of your sin, transform you from the inside out, and will give you communion with God. Pastor Matt and I were talking about this, just how groundbreaking this idea is. What Jesus is offering here, and when he speaks of the gift of the Spirit, that God will reside in us, this is honestly the entire trajectory of the scriptures. From the very beginning of the story to the very end of the story, this is essentially what it is all about, that God would be with us. In the very beginning, God created us, Adam and Eve. He created humanity and says he walked with them in the coolness of the day. He was with his creation. In the very end of the story, the end of the story is not a blessed state, just heaven, right? Us spiritually with God in some sort of proximity. No, but there's something new that happens. God does a new work, a new creation. It says the heavenly Jerusalem comes down and the dwelling of man and the dwelling of God are now one. God is with us. We reside with him. Us in our full humanity, spirit, right? And the physical in a renewed humanity, a new human form. It's not just we die and our spirit floats up and we're with God in a spiritual way. There is no, a new physical, spiritual dynamic that God then dwells with us. So from Eden all the way to new creation, there's this idea that God was with us. We lost that, but he will restore that. But throughout the storyline of Scripture, this is what God has been doing. From the Garden of Eden where he had communion with us. We lost that, but then it was brought back. God met his people on the mountain of Sinai, and he shook that mountain in thunder and in lightning. And he said, I'm going to come. And he told Moses, I'm going to come, and I want to be with my people. I want to see them. I want to be near them, just like I was in the coolness of the garden. And so God comes, and he shakes the mountain, and the people are terrified at how God has displayed himself. Then we see this in the tabernacle. God says, I want to make a dwelling, a mobile dwelling, because my people are on the move. They've left Egypt. They're on the way to the promised land, and so they're on the move, so I'm coming with them. So for me to come with them, I need a special dwelling place, and that is the tabernacle, essentially a fancy word for tent. I'm going to make a tent, and it's going to be holy, and my presence will be right there, and I will be with my people. Then when they get to the promised land, when they're kind of fixed in their new kind of uh, 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 land. God says, I'm going to have a fixed place now, and that is the temple. And God shows up in the temple in a mighty way, right? But then sadly, because of sin, the land is lost, the temple is destroyed. But then Jesus comes back, 
or sorry, but Jesus comes and God's plan is back into action and Jesus says, hey, all of those little pieces of sacred space that God has shown us, from the garden to the mountain to the tabernacle to the temple, now sacred space has exploded and is now inside of you. I will put the Spirit of God in you. And now the triune God will dwell in you. Eden will be in you. The tabernacle in you. The mountain in you. The temple in you. The Spirit of God in you. This is what Jesus is offering them. And all they can think about is rain. Totally missing out on Jesus. And their prayers are for rain. And Jesus wants to forgive them of their sin, transform them, bring them communion by giving them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they just can't see it. They're afraid of missing out on rain. They're not even aware that they're missing out on the greatest gift that they could ever long for. FOMO for Jesus is good. These guys miss it. It's right there before them, and they miss it. Well, let, let me ask you, where's your FOMO? Where's your fear of missing out? We all have the things that we're afraid of missing out on. All of us do. I mean, it's hard to live this life without a fear of missing out on something, right? And good things. It was, it was good for them to be afraid, in a sense, of missing out on rain, especially in their climate. To miss one rainy season, or whatever, one light season of rain would be devastating to their climate, or devastating to them. Maybe the thing that you fear missing out on Maybe is, is intimacy. You know, maybe, maybe you're single. Right? And you see all your friends getting married and finding their soulmates. And you've tried and you've put forth the effort and you just can't seem to find anyone special to spend your life with. So you feel out of place and you... You feel like maybe you will never enjoy that. You feel that you're missing out. Or, or maybe, maybe it's a second chance at romance. Maybe that's what you fear. Maybe you got married and uh, that marriage didn't have a happily ever after, but rather it had disaster. And all your friends that, and young couples that you used to hang out with and you guys would do things as a couple, now, well, now you're kind of the odd man in the group. Now you're the third will or the fifth will or the seventh will or whatever. And you feel like you don't belong now. And you feel like you've got to start all over again. And you wonder to yourself, do I even have the, the energy to kind of do that again? And do I really want to put myself out there again to be hurt? But you're afraid of missing out on a, a second chance at romance. Or, you know, maybe it's Maybe it's infertility. Maybe uh, your deepest desire is just to have a little one in your arms. 
But every doctor's appointment just diminishes that hope of ever becoming a reality. And you can't stand to see your friends post all their pictures of their babies doing cute things. All you want is your little baby to do their cute things. It's hard to to walk this life without the fear of missing out on something. It, It truly is. And all of us have a fear of missing out on something. We see other people enjoying certain things, and we fear that we'll never enjoy those things. Well, friend, I want to tell you that Jesus offers you something a gift that is so incredibly outstanding that I truly believe meets the deepest longing of your soul. A gift that says your sins can be forgiven. Every wrongdoing, every moment of disappointment, every time that you now look back on and regret, every season of shame in your life, he says, I can forgive that. By giving you the Spirit and the Spirit applying my death and resurrection to you, you can be forgiven. And I can change you. I can change you from the inside. Not just the behaviors on the outside. I can give you new desires. I can give you new motives. I can give you new intentions. I can give you new aspirations. I can give you new ambition. I can give you new loves. I can change you from the inside and make you the person you know you should be and you know you want to be and you know you ought to be, but you can't seem to be. I can change you. Oh, and if that's not enough, I can put the divine creator of the universe the triune God that exists in a very mystical way, in a way we we cannot understand that he is one God in three persons, one essence, three persons. We cannot understand that he exists on a plane that is just beyond us, which makes sense because he is beyond us. But somehow Jesus is saying, by the power of the Spirit, I can place the triune God inside of you that you have communion with the creator of the universe. I could do all of those things. And I'm telling you, if that's the gift that you receive, if that's what you don't miss out on, all of those other needs are much easier to deal with. I'm not saying all of them will be satisfied. But when you receive that gift, the gift of the Spirit, it is much easier to walk through life. It's much easier to walk through Life, even with the hurts of missing out on good things, because you have the greatest thing. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I, w- I want you to try something this week in light of this passage, in light of this truth that Jesus gives us. I want to invite you to pray a prayer. I want to invite you just to take one, one time this week, just one time, I'm not asking you to do this every day. I'm just asking you to do it at least once. You can do it more times, but if do it at least once. Maybe right now as I'm talking, you can think of a day that you can set aside this week to do this. I'm asking you to do this. I want, I want to encourage you to do this. I want to encourage you to pray a prayer that basically says, Father, search my heart. 
Help me to see what I thirst for. Because in your life, you may find that you do have the fear of missing out on something. You are thirsting for something. And that thirst may be overwhelming your satisfaction with the Spirit. You may be thirsting so strongly for this thing that you're missing out on the work that God has done in your life, that he's forgiven your sins, transformed you, and given you communion with God. And this great gift that, that, that easily eclipse, eclipses whatever you're thirsting for, somehow that thirst inside of you is overwhelming your satisfaction with that. And so what I'm asking you to do is this, is to pray a prayer like this saying, Father, please find in me what I thirst for. And when God reveals that to you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to offer it back to him. And say, Father, have your way with this. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're that couple, you're trying to get into your first home, right? You're renting right now, and you, you're in, you know, like, I got to get in the market, right? That's what my parents are telling me to do. That's what my friends are doing, and all this stuff. You know what? If God shows you that what you're thirsting for is for that new home, then you say, Father, you have your way with it. You have your way with it. I, I put it up in your hands. Or, or maybe, maybe it's that finding that soulmate, right? That's a good thing. Say, Father, I see that, that I, I thirst for this. I thirst for the romance and the intimacy in a godly way. I thirst for being one with somebody. Father, I place that in your hand. I know I'm satisfied in what you've done in the Spirit. Help not my thirst outweigh my satisfaction in that. Whatever it is, whatever you find it to be, whatever God shows you, uh, uh, shows you it is, just offer it back to him. Now, maybe you're here and you're listening. You're, you wouldn't call yourself a, a follower of Jesus Christ yet. I want to speak to you for a moment because I think there's something very valuable to take from this passage as well for you. And that is this. You know, I, I find it interesting that, that I've experienced many people who want to come to church or coming to church for the first time or exploring Christianity for the first time or having spiritual conversations with someone for the first time. And they're doing it out of really good ambition, good motives, right? Uh, I've seen people who, who have come to church saying, hey, I just, I just kind of need to get my marriage right. It's not where I want it to be, so I'm coming because I think this will help my marriage. Or, or I've seen it, you know, I've seen it, in this one I've seen a lot, of where a young couple maybe has a child or, or a, a single parent with a child, and, and the child's growing up and think to yourself, man, I know I was rowdy when I was a kid and I made some bad choices, but I don't think school's going to teach my kid how to behave, but I, I bet church will. So I'm, I want to raise them right. I want to raise them with some good morals, and so I'm going to bring them to church. And I, again, I think that's a good thing. I, I do. Or, or maybe it's just, you know, maybe you, you've made some bad choices in the past and you just want to be a better person. And you feel like maybe a little bit of religion could help that. So you come, you come to church, and you say, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to pray a little bit. I'm going to, I'm going to try to get, I'm just going to try to be a better person. I don't, I got hurt by some of the choices I made over here, so I really want to be a better person. And I think, again, those are great things. Here's what I want to say to you. If that's you, in any of those categories, that you've, you've come to Christianity, you've come to this service, you're listening because a friend invited you to listen, or, or, or whatever it is, and you're curious about Christianity because of those things, let me tell you this. Jesus can give you way more than you ever expected. Way more. I think in some sense you might be coming 
similar to the Pharisees. Fear of missing out on rain is what they had. And you maybe have a fear of missing out on not being your best self, not being a, a better person, that your child not being raised with good morals, or your marriage not being healthy, right? And those are all good things, and they desired a good thing. But you, man, can I just say, brace yourself. Because Jesus can give you so much more than that. So much more than that. He can forgive your sin. He can transform you, and he can give you everlasting communion with your Creator. That's probably much more than you were looking for. But I'll tell you what, you will find nothing else as satisfying. That's what Jesus offers. And I pray today that you would believe in Jesus Christ as he asks you to do here, and that you would receive the gift of the Spirit that he promises you. The moment you believe, he will shower forth those living waters of the Spirit. Your sins will be forgiven. You will be transformed. And you will have communion with God the moment you believe. And I pray that moment is today. That you would believe that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is the only means of forgiveness for your sin. It's the only way you can have a right standing with God. There's not anything you could do, any good works you could do, any amount of money that you can give, but only believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the only way. When Jesus says believe, that's what he's talking about. Believe in the work that I did, that I died and rose again, taking on the penalty of your sin, bearing it and putting it away from you forever, and rising again and offering you the gift of eternal life. Would you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ today? Because if you do, the Spirit will be poured out on you in that moment, and you will have everything that the prophets talked about, and everything that Jesus promised here. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you, man, You have given us such a great gift in the Spirit. It is truly living water to our souls. It satisfies us. At the deepest part of who we are, we would all long to erase the sins of our past, all long to take away the mistakes that we've made in our life. Who wouldn't want their rap sheet clear? And yet this is what you offer to us in the gift of the Spirit as he applies your work to our life. And we all long to be truly who we ought to be, who we should be, but who we can't seem to be. But you can transform us. By the gift of the Spirit, you can change us. Give us a new heart. Put a heart of flesh in here. Give us new loves, desires, and ambitions. Oh, Father, how we all long for communion, for relationship. In the deepest, most intimate way, we seek for it in others. We look to our parents, our our brothers, our sisters, our friends, our spouses. But no one truly satisfies the deep relational longing inside of us because we all long to know our creator. 
the one who made us, who knows every part of us. We long to be with him. And this is what the Spirit guarantees, that he will reside in us. God will be in us. There is no greater gift that you can offer us than that gift. Help us to be satisfied. Help us to not thirst for anything else but that. Not that it's bad to long for things, but let not those longings turn to thirst where we are not satisfied in what we have in the Spirit anymore. Oh, Father, may that never be. Father, for those who are here and they're, they're ready to believe in you, to believe that you sent your Son to die on the cross for their sin. Oh, Father, I, I, I pray right now that they are having a sense of excitement. They long to have what Christ offers here. They long for their sins to be forgiven, for them to be transformed, and them to have communion with you. They long for it. And if that's you, you could simply say to God a very simple prayer. You could say, I believe that Christ died and rose again for the forgiveness of my sin, and I commit my life to follow him. And if you say that and you believe it in your heart, the Spirit of God is in you now. And he has done all those things that we've talked about. What a wonderful day for you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Again, I want to thank you for joining us here on our online services. We look forward to seeing you again next Sunday.